My guest in this first half hour today is Naomi Shalit, senior reporter for the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting and a frequent guest here on Maine Currents. Welcome back, Naomi. Thanks so much. Today we're going to be talking about what she discovered in a nine-month-long investigation into poverty and single parenting in Maine, an investigation that resulted in a five-part series, which you can read along if you wish or read later at pinetreewatchdog.org. There's also a link to that on WERU's Facebook page. And listeners, before we get started, I just want to let you know that if you have any questions during this segment, call now. We're only going to have Naomi here with us for the first half hour, and then we're going to shift to another uh, completely different segment and not be taking calls. So we're going to open the phone lines as soon as she has a chance to tell you what the what the series is about, and then we'll start taking your calls and uh, questions and comments right away at 469-0500. So you can even uh, call as soon as you have a sense of what it is if you have any questions, and we'll try to move with wherever the questions, your questions take us, as well as the questions that I have prepared. Uh, Naomi, uh, can you read the first few paragraphs of part one, just to set the stage and save my voice, please? Sure, Thank sure. You. Uh, the headline is 500% rise in single parenthood, fueling family poverty in Maine. Thousands of Maine children are living in poverty because of a crisis that goes unnamed. It is creating a generation of children who struggle in school, will have a hard time qualifying for a decent job, and are more likely to have run-ins with the law and suffer from mental health problems. It is costing all Mainers millions of dollars in programs to help these children and their families. At the same time, those who know the problem best are not sure those programs can ever succeed. Many think more needs to be done. But they acknowledge the crisis doesn't have a chance of being solved if public officials, educators, social service agencies, and others won't publicly put a name on it. The very people who are in the business of helping the poor are afraid to talk publicly about it. They don't want to appear to be making moral judgments about those they want to help. They don't want to shame the victim. But dig deep enough, talk to enough experts, review enough academic studies, and the name of the problem emerges. Too many single parents having children they can't afford to take care of. A nine-month investigation by the Maine Center for Public Interest reporting that included original analysis done for the center by university sociologists, interviews with state and national experts, days and hours spent with child care providers, educators, and single mothers and fathers, reveals that the inability to lower the poverty rate for families with children in Maine is due in large part to a change in the makeup of the state's families. In 1970, 7.1% of births in Maine were to unmarried women. In 2013, 41% of births in Maine were to unmarried women. That's almost a 500% increase in a little more than a single generation. The poverty rate for Maine families in 2014 would be 27.8% lower if the share of families headed by single mothers remained at the 1970 level. And that's according to researchers at University of New Hampshire's Carsey Center for Public Policy. So to be clear, clear before we dig into some of the data and, and the personal anecdotes that you report on, you're not suggesting that single parents, which in most cases are moms, are to blame for poverty. This isn't about blaming and shaming. This is about telling the story of what is actually happening in our society here in Maine. And what it's a story that needs to be told if Maine is to help its children have the full and productive lives that they deserve. So we, we took a lot of care to get the voices of single mothers in here, the advocates for those single mothers. We got the single we got the fathers in this series because 
because too many of the stories about single mothers don't even touch these absent, largely absent fathers. So the idea was this is too big a story not to tell for fear of being um, labeled unfair or that we were shaming anyone. We told the story with as much sensitivity and understanding as we could, and it needs to get out there. And before we talk about what's happening with the mostly mom-led families with kids, we're going to skip ahead to the fourth part in your series, which took an in-depth look at where are the fathers. So let's talk about that real quickly. Yeah, I had two editors on this series, both of them um, men, and they were both adamant I had to get to talk to the fathers. Not so easy to do. A lot of these fathers um, don't want to be found. They're not paying the child support that they're supposed to pay. They're <clears throat> excuse me, not having... Um, any kind of relationship with their kids, you know, sort of going to these guys and saying, why are you such a lousy father? It's not an interview that they want to take part in. But I found, finally, that there were programs for fathers like this at the Maine State Prison, and that's where I went. And they were, these were fathers who had, uh, for the most part, certainly in the class that I went to, recognized that they had not taken the responsibility that they were supposed to. One of them only met his son while he was in prison in a prison visitation room. And it was a son that had been born before he was in prison. Yep. So you pulled together a lot of demographic information. The, the Like most of your stories at Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting, there's a lot packed into a short space, and I really encourage people to go to pinetreewatchdog.org and look at some of the graphs and look at the citations because it doesn't make great radio to try to recreate a graph, <laughs> but it does explain a lot of the information there. But under the heading of perpetual crisis, there you have several numbers. Can you walk us through sort of a summary of, of some of those findings? I'll give you a second. Give me a to... moment. So the escalating crisis, which one is a this? A perpetual crisis. Oh. It's in uh, section one here. Section and one. Looming, I've got looming crisis, and then I, hmm. Um, uh, maybe I copied that wrong. Yeah. Oh, there it is. There it is. Sorry. Yes. Yep. This I, is yeah. a, the, the, the graph. <laughs> I spent almost a year on this. <laughs> I should know, but I didn't write the subheads. Right. The graph of the poverty among Maine families from. Yeah. I, I think what this section tells about really is there's a word in vogue right now, and it's inequality. And this talks about the inequality um, that is rapidly developing um, among the children of Maine, which is that in 2014, 69% of Maine's children in poor families and 54% of children in low-income families, so that's just a bit above the poverty rate, were being raised by a single parent. In middle and upper class families, only 19% of the children were being raised by a single parent. So that means well-educated people get married and have children. Those without college degrees are much more likely to have children outside of marriage. And so um, I spent a lot of time looking at the work of Isabel Sawhill, an economist at the Brookings Institution, who has studied this on a national basis. And she has come up with these figures. The proportion of first births that occur outside of marriage is only 12% for those who are college graduates, and it's almost 60% for everyone else. So, And what happens to these children born to mothers and fathers who don't have college educations now is that they will most likely become poor themselves. The, 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 the children. The research bears yeah. that out. Yeah. <clears throat> now, one of the people who you interviewed uh, pointed out that part of the reason for single, that single parent families obviously have 
some advantages in cases where people are raising kids by themselves by choice because, and maybe because the situation they were in was abusive. So this means since 1970, there are more choices. It's uh, more accepted to be able to get out of a really bad situation. But one of the things, the, the bottom line here is sort of the bottom line, how much it costs to raise a child and whether or not the average individual can make that amount. And can make it both financially and emotionally. You all, it is very hard for two-parent families with a newborn a young child. They, nobody's getting sleep. They need, you know, they often are lacking an income at the time that the child is born um, from one of the parents, but eventually they have the two incomes. They have the ability to pay for childcare. They have the resources when one of them is too tired for the other parent to take up. Um, so they have both emotional and financial resources. When you are a single parent, um, and that includes, you know, one of the things a lot of people brought up when I started talking about this and doing my research was, well, a lot of these single parents are, are living with a guy. A lot of these single mothers, yes, but those relationships don't last, statistically speaking. They and are, are those guys contributing to the not necessarily, financial support of the kids? Um, absolutely not. Um, you can't, uh, you know, quite often what you hear are stories of a guy who essentially bed surfs from one mother to another. I uh, One of the places I was able to get some real... Um, ground truthing on this phenomenon that's happening here in Maine was at the Attorney General's office where I spoke to the head of their division that enforces child support payments. And this woman sees it all. And she literally had a case that she told me about quite recently where there was a guy who was father to 10 children by five different mothers, was not supporting any of them. A couple of the children by different mothers were born within days or weeks of each other. And he had no employment history. So they couldn't even assess. And where did they start to assess how much he could afford to um, help support these kids? Who could afford to raise 10 kids? Oh, my God. So in your report that economists from MIT have calculated that a single parent supporting one child in Somerset County would need to earn a wage of twenty-one fifty-three an hour or an annual income of almost $45,000 a year. Which to, you don't earn at Dunkin' Donuts. Right, right. Well, while you don't earn in a lot of places, just to meet the family's basic needs for shelter, food, health care, child care, and transportation. And that's Somerset County, which I would venture to guess at least most parts of Somerset County are less expensive rent-wise than some other parts of the state, say Cumberland County, for instance. So do you have any idea of how that plays out in other parts of the state? And uh, uh, Well, I can tell you this. I didn't speak to a single, single mother who said, I have lots of money to pay for child care. The child care portion of their lives is an enormous burden if they want. And, and essentially, they watch sometimes half to two-thirds of their income go out the door to that. So it's kind of like, what's the point in working? Um, they can get subsidies. They're hard to get. Um, one of the women I spoke to, she said her, her almost daily dealings with various agencies um, – it, she called it appeasing the gods, right, having to answer. It becomes a full-time job. Then you're, you've got most of these mothers, as we said, um, don't have beyond a high school education. And so their ability to earn money in a Maine that has gone from a state that offered high-quality blue-collar jobs that paid a living wage, such as we used to have in the mills, those jobs are mostly gone. 
So you need much more either education or training to be able to earn the kind of money that MIT says you need um, to have a household where your carburetor doesn't, you know, if your carburetor goes, you're not without a car. You know, these these families are, um, I, I looked at this study that was done for the city of Auburn. They said families living under poverty live in perpetual crisis. For single parents, the instability is even greater. Two out of three, because they studied these families in Auburn, fell behind on utility bills. 60% experienced a car breakdown with no money to fix it. Almost a third had to move due to inability to meet housing expenses. So this is perpetual crisis. You know, I I talked to teachers who had kids move two, three, four times during the course of a year from one apartment that they got evicted from to another. Um, It is perpetual crisis for for these mothers um, for whom the social safety net isn't big enough. Um, and uh, the costs are just enormous to um, trying to have a kid or a couple of kids, um, have them in childcare so you can have a job, buy them clothes, do the laundry, keep your car up, pay insurance, pay the rent, you name it. It's, it's, not, it's almost impossible for most of them. Again, we're talking with Naomi Shalit for the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting about a recent five-part series that she did. You can find it at pinetreewatchdog.org. Naomi will be with us until 4.30, so if you have any questions or comments or maybe you've experienced some of this and would like to weigh in, give us a call at 469-0500. You mentioned schools, and you did talk a little bit more in your... uh, one of the sections of this five-part series about the impacts in school, which included kids having a hard time uh, being able to focus, coming to school hungry. Uh, and I have to wonder about some of the programs that have been cut back. I, uh, some public schools used to have brec- not just lunches, subsidized lunches in the morning, but or subsidized lunches in the afternoon, but also subsidized breakfasts. You don't hear that really anymore. Um, some of the schools have expanded their uh, food programs to go through the summer, I've seen lately, but mostly what you hear about when it comes to social services are things being cut back, less and less and less. And also a lot of, you know, speaking of shaming, a lot of public shaming of, you know, the parents who are supposedly going through buying a cartload of Twinkies with their food stamps doesn't sound like any of that was what you were finding. No, and uh, what I did find was that um, there's been a pretty concerted effort, um, certainly ideologically by the LePage administration, to really tighten the screws on poor people in the state. And one of the major ways they did that was to place a five-year limit on temporary aid to needy families on on TANF, which is a major source of cash income for um, families like these. And, you know, once that stopped... Um, what we've seen is the percentage of Maine families, our poverty rate hasn't gone up. Who is poor has changed to these families. And the number of families in deep poverty in the last, I think it's five, seven years, has gone up at a very, very fast clip. And that is probably related to that cutting off of TANF. Um, there are some odd things that I um, also found um, that had to do with um, when I looked at the schools, I had to look at the broader issue of poverty. 
Um, and so the effects that are being seen in schools, um, the, the real problems and, and the chaos in the classroom, and it's a crisis according to any number of teachers and administrators I spoke to, um, they, they felt like certainly the children of single parents were a big piece of the poverty they were seeing in their classrooms, but not the only piece. But I will say that, that schools are not only offering breakfasts, um, which I think by and large they continue to do, and in fact there's been an expansion in some areas. They are. But um, they're now offering. I had one um, school district um, out in western Maine um, in Farmington that, that encompasses, I think it's about 10 towns in, in western Maine there. They have showers that they give the kids um, the use of because they were finding, and I, the superintendent told me this, he was remarkably honest, there were kids getting off the school bus who hadn't eaten, who'd barely slept, who were wearing dirty, dirty clothes, who hadn't been hadn't cleaned themselves, been cleaned. So they literally give these kids clothes. They give them showers. They feed them. And then you think, okay, ready for the classroom. He says, no, 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 no. Then you've got to work on their social-emotional skills because they're coming to school from pretty unsettled family settings. And they're just not ready to even deal emotionally with their fellow students and their teachers. And the moms you talk to, and let's talk about some of the their stories. I mean, it's not easy for them either. They're, the kids at least are maybe getting a couple meals at school. How are they getting by? You know, here's what one mom said to me. Um, every week's the same. I'm always broke. The electric, internet, diapers, toiletries, food when we run out of my food card. Sometimes if I have something I can sell, you know, she'll sell it. Sometimes I can borrow from my mom or my dad, but it's not easy to ask. The father of her daughter has five children by four different women, and at the time she spoke to me, he was now in prison. Um, it's become normalized for these women to bear and raise children by themselves. So this woman said to me, you anticipate having the baby on your own. You don't expect the father to be there. So their lives are very difficult. And most, you know, if you look at the statistics, most of these mothers are working. They are not sitting at home, right. you know, the Reagan um, parody of a welfare queen. Right. These, they're not eating bonbons and filing their nails. Right, and, and there's been so much resistance to increasing the minimum wage because I, one of the arguments you hear is that, oh, no, high school kids are going to make too much money. But a lot of these moms are working at jobs where they are making the minimum wage. The, yeah, it seems like it would do a lot to help. It might, but here's what the folks at New Hampshire, UNH's Carsey Center told me. A proportion of them, and this is not an argument against it, it's just the law of unintended consequences, once they start making a higher wage, they'll get kicked off of all the programs because they'll earn too high a wage. That's not all of them by any means, but you've got, they call it the cliff effect. And there needs to be some intelligent policy making that, that rewards and doesn't um, uh, hurt people if they earn enough money to support their families. Um, and I think the other thing that's clear is I don't think you will ever solve this problem by raising the minimum wage more and more and more. What you need, because we need people with education and skills to fill the jobs um, here in Maine. And we can't just have people who have the skills for sort of low-level service jobs. Um, we, need, we need to provide a future 
for women and men who at the moment don't feel like they have a future. So what's the point in waiting to have a kid? It's not going to be any different five years, 10 years down the line. I'll be in the same low-level job that pays me, you know, bubkis and, you know, why should I wait? I'll have the kids now. Um, so so what, what this is really about in, in a fundamental way is an economy that no longer serves the families of Maine. Right. So I think the argument that you're making is was kind of the impetus behind getting some work training in place, although that doesn't seem to have really been a particularly successful program. It gets so politicized that things get cut, maybe added a little bit here. There's an intention that this program does this, but then it's not funded. What are, as we, <coughs> excuse me, what are some of the uh, solutions that the moms that you spoke with, did they have any ideas about what they would need or did you come out of this with some ideas about what some solutions might be. Yeah, you know, the good thing about being a reporter is that I can point out the problem and not have to figure out how exactly. to solve it. Exactly, I know you don't um, have but to. <laughs> at the same time, it was it was so grim to tell this story that personally I wanted to go out and see, are there places that are trying to attack this um, and help these families, these mothers, these fathers, and most especially these children? Um, and there are. What I will say about all of them, and they range from programs for children that essentially take them, I think it's at six weeks um, to six years once they they um, go off to, to kindergarten or first grade, and give them 12-hour-a-day, um, you know, kind of head start-like intensive attention in an educational setting. So... Educare in Waterville and an offshoot of Educare that's now operating in Skowhegan. Um, these are places that not only serve the child, they have social workers on staff to serve the parents, to help them navigate through this incredibly complex thicket of programs in order to help them access the maximum they can get out of these programs so that their kids get what they need and so that they get what they need. Everything from rental assistance to childcare subsidies to tuition subsidies to job training. And that seems like 12 hours a day having the child would give you more flexibility with what jobs you can take too because these jobs where you're making minimum wage don't, and you don't know your schedule yeah, ahead yeah, of time exactly, exactly. or and they say no you have to stay <clears throat> late tonight we're busy mm -hmm. and you've got a kid and mm -hmm. you're a single parent you don't mm -hmm. have somebody else to pick them up i mean mm -hmm. 12 hours would give a little bit more flexibility for work that's right um or school or school or training or, 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 or adult ed i mean one of the marvelous things they're doing is they're making the adult ed is happening on the same campus where the kids are um, getting there. Great, their, so they can go and yeah, have exactly. lunch together or uh -huh. whatever. So there's that in Skowhegan and, and Waterville. And then I went up to, um, excuse me, <clears throat> to Machias, where there's an amazing um, program called Families Futures Down East, um, which is an intensive program to, to, to make college students out of mothers who never thought they could be. And they, they worked with mothers to design a program that gave them what they needed. So that's everything from a gas card so that you can get your car to, from your house to school. And they go to University of Maine Machias and then the other community college campus up there. There is free childcare. 
that happens while you are on campus. They give you a meal with your kid um, and all these other parents in this wonderful room at the child care center, which is a high-level um, child care center. And um, they have counselors. They have mentors. They have people who keep in touch with these women almost every day. Um, and the entire curriculum is designed with their needs in mind. So their, their goal is to work with these women and their children to get them through get them through at least the first year of college and then, you know, successfully eventually through college with enough training and knowledge to get a higher paid job. Um, there are jobs that are absolutely going unfilled in Washington County that um, these women could fill that would earn them a heck of a lot more money than they're earning mm -hmm. now, but they need this training. Both of those programs and then some legislation that Angus King has introduced um, in D.C. to um, help uh, subsidize women, um, single moms, going to um, college, getting job training. All of these things are expensive. They're very expensive. You're not going to see the legislature pass a budget that includes a statewide program like either of these. Um, there's private money in these. There's federal money in these. But they do um, provide a model off of which other solutions can, um, can work. And um, the idea is that you've, um, you're spending the money now and not spending it later because the kids of these families are not going to do well. They have very foreshortened horizons when it comes to jobs, education, and their own success. And yes. they'll, they'll need government programs themselves if you don't intervene sooner. And, it, and the things that Naomi's saying, there are statistics and studies that you can click on at uh, pinetreewatchdog.org and find out where she's getting that information from. She's not just sharing her opinion. This is backed up with the studies that she cited. I wondered, and I guess this isn't necessarily the case, but how much lack of access and even maybe in coming years even more reduced access to reproductive health care plays a role in all of this. Uh, I, it may not be a big factor in some of the, with some of the women that you spoke with, but it certainly seems like it will lead to more uh, unplanned and even unwanted pregnancies. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think the jury is out on whether it's lack of access right now. Um, you hear a lot of women say, well, then I stopped using it, and then I got pregnant. It's part of a sort of package of behaviors in these kinds of relationships. And as I said, um, it's very clear that um, you know, we can't say poor people can't have kids because they're poor. But if the people who don't want to have kids can't even then find they, a place to get any Clearly. And, and there's actually, there was a bill passed last legislature, um, I think it was in March or May, that gives, um, I'm pretty sure it's almost tens of thousands of women here in Maine, better access to free um, contraception. And there's a, a big move afoot among the people who are concerned about this issue to look at long-acting reversible contraception, um, which has been a tremendous success out in Colorado where they did a major public health intervention to bring down the rates of actually teen pregnancies. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's a fair amount of thinking on this, both in terms of access and what kind of contraception that could help. But again, you know, when you're dealing with a situation where it doesn't make any difference if you have a kid now or you have a kid later, I don't think, you know, poor people are human beings. They want children just like the rest of us who've had children do. And so it's a, it's a tough thing to say, well, you shouldn't have one because mm -hmm. you can't support it.
on the other hand, you know, there are consequences to that that are real and, and lifelong for the kids quite often. Hmm. So much more to talk about, but that's just are touching on... Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me, just scratching the surface, but please go to pinetreewatchdog.org and uh, you can... Also, I'm sure get in touch with you if they have sure. have uh, questions via that uh, website as well. But read the information that's up there. She's compiled a lot of information, five-part series that was put together through nine months of investigation. Uh, I'd appreciate you coming back and joining us again. Oh, anytime, Amy. You're my favorite interviewer. Oh, thank you, Naomi. It's so oh, it's great to, to have you as here. a guest as And well. the coffee is really good up here at WERU. Are you? Strong. Yes. Hear yes. that, Willie? Yes. <laughs> this is Naomi Shalit from the Maine Center for Public Interest reporting that website. Again, it is pinetreewatchdog.org. And we are going to shift gears now. We have a talk up next by Dud Hendrick. He's a local Vietnam veteran, activist, member of the local chapter of Veterans for Peace. And he spoke earlier this month at the Reversing Fall Sanctuary about the topic of drones. This piece was recorded and produced by WERU's Carolyn Coe. On December 3rd, 2016, Dud Hendrick gave a presentation about U.S. drone policy. A Vietnam veteran, graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, an active member of Veterans for Peace, Dud Hendrick has campaigned for the displaced people of Yekis and Diego Garcia. He has spoken against U.S. military aggression and U.S. military bases around the world, traveling to Jeju Island, South Korea, and Okinawa, Japan. He has also spoken out against U.S. weapons sales. His talk was at Reversing Falls Sanctuary in Brooksville, Maine, where seven quilts from the Drones Quilt Project are on display in early December. The Drones Quilt Project was started by former Veterans for Peace President Leah Bulger, who believes in the importance of naming those who have been killed by U.S. drone strikes and has worked to help ensure that the victims are remembered. Now we join Dut Hendricks PowerPoint presentation. My presentation is graphic and brutal. I apologize for that, but I intended, I intended for it to be that. I see no other way to transmit the horror of what we are visiting upon others. A couple of weeks ago, several of us here were able to watch a film that Judy and Peter and Vanessa and Peace and Justice had brought to the Blue Hill Library, Robert Greenwald's film, Unmanned America's Drone Wars. After the screening, there was a prolonged period of silence as we were just trying to absorb and make sense of what we had seen. Of course, we weren't able to. Our country's course is an insane one. A profound loss of humanity seems to be the earmark of our behavior, or at least of our leader's behavior. Wish that they would know the words of Brian Wilson, whom some of you may know as a very prominent Veterans for Peace activists who lost both of his legs to an armaments train shipping munitions down the west coast of California to Nicaragua in 1987. And Brian Wilson said in reference to the people of Nicaragua and the people everywhere who are subject to our brutality that we are worth no more, they are worth no less. Wouldn't it be well if our leaders would practice uh, policies that would pay reference to that? Desmond Tutu and his forward to Marjorie Cohn's Drones and Targeted Killing, which is a book that I referred to for much of my information today, writes of Ubuntu from the Bantu language of South Africa. Ubuntu is the essence of being human. Ubuntu means that we are all connected. 
When anyone is diminished, we're all diminished. When anyone is humiliated, we're all humiliated. When anyone is killed by a drone, we're all harmed. He cites Americans as having demonstrated Ubuntu when they demonstrated and boycotted classes in opposition to apartheid in South Africa and earlier in the 50s and 60s in support of U.S. civil rights movement and again in the 60s and 70s in opposition to the Vietnam War. Surely those people in Standing Rock today are exercising Ubuntu. Desmond Tutu is calling on us when, he comes, when it comes to drones to practice Ubuntu. For several years, I paid close attention to our imperialism, most clearly symbolized and substantiated by our vast array of foreign military bases. As some of you know, I have become sensitized, radicalized even, if you will, on learning of the displacement of indigenous peoples, the indigenous peoples of Thule, Greenland, and Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, and of the people of the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean. And their stories led me down a path that acquainted me with the consequences of our militarism around the planet, as graphically represented by the fact that we do have 800 bases on foreign soil, whereas the rest of the world's countries might have fewer than 30. Ours is a hideous record, not the least aspect of being the widespread despoiling of the planet. And it's all indicative, I believe, of a power run amok that would bestraddle the Earth with little concern for the consequences. It's a reality that prompts me to wonder if we as a people lack compassion, lack empathy, and lack Ubuntu, if you will. Though I know it isn't true, just think of the reversing falls community. Look around us. As special as reversing falls is, we know that it's not unique, that there are marvelous people all around the state, all around the country, doing marvelous things for other people, for other creatures, for our planet. But we know just as well that our leaders are pursuing unthinkable policies that treat the lives of innocents as expendable and threaten the very existence of our beloved planet. And we know they are aided and abetted by a complicit mainstream media that serves, first, the corporate elite. Martin Luther King, we all know, said in 1967 that the greatest purveyor of violence in the world was his government, our government. That's, I believe, inarguably as true today as it was then. I want to quickly share with you a few other quotations that I've run across over my years engaged in this subject that I believe encapsulate and reveal sentiment and philosophy that have governed our country's behavior. George Kennan was the first director of the State Department's planning policy staff. He said this in 1948. We have 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6% of the population. The disparity is particularly great between ourselves and the people of Asia. Our real task is to maintain the position of disparity without detriment to our national security. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality. We need not deceive ourselves that we can afford the luxury of altruism and world benefaction. Extraordinary stuff, huh? He went on to say, the day is not far off. We are going to have to deal in straight power concepts. The less we are then hampered by idealistic slogans. The less, the better. And Henry Kissinger said, not unsurprisingly, in reference to the people of the Marshall Islands, 
who were evicted from their islands and radiated by our atomic bomb testing out there, there are only 90,000 people. Who gives a damn? These are public pronouncements by our leaders. And he said depopulation should be the highest priority of our foreign policy towards the third world because we need the minerals of those countries. Jimmy Carter, who I'm inclined to admire in many other, if not all other respects, said with regards to the $3.3 million fee that we, or billion dollars, I'm sorry, billion dollars that we agreed to pay at the Paris Peace Accords after the Vietnam War, that we owed Vietnam nothing because the destruction was mutual. We never paid it. George H.W. Bush said this in reference to an Iranian civilian airliner that we shot down. I will never apologize for the United States. And Madeleine Albright, if we have to use forces because we are America, we are the indispensable nation. We stand tall, we see further than other countries <laughs> into the future, and we see the danger here to all of us. And even perhaps more famously, she said this with regards to the half a million children in Iraq that were, whose lives were brought to an early end because of our sanctions that we imposed on Iraq. Madeleine Albright's words were, I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. And back to George H.W. Bush, he said, the American way of life is not up for negotiations, period in response to or in reference to the Rio Earth Summit disclosure that the world was being destroyed by unsustainable consumption. The American way of life is not up for negotiation. So I don't think these are, these are uh, digressions from the discussion about the drones. They have laid the groundwork, I feel, for and have made possible that policies like the drone assassination program such statements are telling, but our recent history in the Middle East is testimony to a reckless and self-destructive policy there, devoid of Ubuntu. The author, Andrew Basevich, tells us that we have bombed 14 Muslim countries since the beginning of this century. And William Bloom, the scholar, tells us we've bombed 28 countries since World War II. And we have attempted to overthrow, or have overthrown, 57 countries since World War II. And surely a strong case can be made that we have virtually destroyed Iraq and Afghanistan, and much of the Middle East is aflame. Getting back to the drones, I would argue that while Guantanamo, Bagram, and other so-called detention centers might be the, temp the temples of contemporary American militarism, that drones are the outreach vehicles through which we are delivering our message to the community of nations. They constitute the flagship on which we fly our colors. We have 60 bases that, the, that are an integral part of our drone program on other nations' soil. Not those bases in the U.S., of which there are many that are involved in, in uh, piloting and uh, uh, conducting those drones to their missions here in the States, but in other countries. We have an armed drone campaign, meaning we are killing people in these six countries. The six countries being Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, and Pakistan. And there are thousands of people turning out in mass demonstrations in each of those countries. 
many of the statistics that I'm citing are coming from uh, uh, are coming from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in London, a very highly accredited nonprofit organization that's doing a lot of work in uh, identifying what the consequences of this policy is, particularly in Pakistan. Harper's, <clears throat> the line we're missing here is that Harper's Magazine has recently shared with us that in the course of three days in September, we bombed six countries. So this is a measure of how little we know about what's going on in this program. It's highly, highly uh, clandestine. More than 160 children were among the 385 civilians killed by U.S. drone attacks in Pakistan from 2004 to 2011. At Reversing Falls Sanctuary in Brooksville, Maine, Dud Hendrick, active member of Veterans for Peace, spoke about U.S. drone policy on December 3rd. This is a measure of how the practice has grown in these uh, past several years. During George Bush's administration, the U.S. carried out about 50 drone attacks in Pakistan. Obama has conducted six times that amount in just the first, uh, the first four years of his administration. And you see here the Bureau of Investigative Journalism has estimated that 98% of the victims of drone attacks are collateral damage <clears throat> what we know as human beings. They estimate that nearly 4,000 total casualties have resulted in Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia. You might guess or conclude that one reason we are conducting this heinous uh, program is that it's, uh, it's appealing because it can be so secretive that there are, and because uh, there are no American casualties. So it's highly appealing. It seems, on the other hand, it seems all the more disturbing to me. And the fact that it's scandalously, there is scandalously limited coverage of the whole program is highly disturbing. I think we need to examine three issues with respect to the drone assassination, assassination program. And those are, the program is arguably illegal, immoral, and unwise. With regards to the legality issue, the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are being fought under a congressional authorization for the use of military forces, AUMF, you've probably seen that acronym. But that doesn't trump UN, the UN Charter, which governs international law with regards to armed warfare. So the UN has never declared our actions legitimate self-defense. Therefore, the taking of lives in these countries is illegal according to international law. And the UN has never sanctioned our invasion of either of those countries, Afghanistan or Iraq. And in Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia, the US is not involved in armed conflict. Consequently, taking of lives there by any kind of munition is illegal according to international law especially when they are uh, extrajudicial extra killings, which is really what we're talking about altogether here. The U.S. is allegedly identifying persons suspected of planning terrorist attacks. And these people are not charged. There's no evidence brought against them. And no attempt to capture or arrest is made. It's far simpler just to kill them. 
So they're placed on a kill list. The government, in this case Barack Obama, plays the role of judge, jury, and executioner. Pretty much in stark contradiction of what we believe sets us apart. The author Robert Naiman makes the point, the Obama administration is refusing to disclose even the most basic information. We generally don't know who we are fighting. We don't know how many people have killed and we don't know how many civilians are being killed. Unless we look to sources like these nonprofits, the most prominent of which is the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And we don't hear anything about what the legal justification might be because there is none. Drone assassinations are surely immoral. I would argue that killing without judicial process is not only immoral, but that the immorality of such killing can in no way be attenuated or ameliorated by the fact that someone thousands of miles away is pulling the trigger. Then there's the practice of so-called double tapping, which would seem all the more repugnant. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism tells us that after a drone strike, the U.S. often follows up with a second strike on the theory that they are killing equally criminal suspects rushing to the scene of the initially uh, afflicted. Of course, never mind that all too often many of those people are, are first responders and other rescuers. Unbelievably, it's also been documented that we could have, we could refer to this in some cases as triple tapping also because in many cases we are also firing missiles at the funeral services for the victims of the first one or two strikes in a given area. So drone warfare, warfare as it is being practiced by the Obama administration has circumvented the requirement for a congressional declaration of war. We are killing, therefore, without the official yet dubious sanction of the people by virtue of a vote of our governmental representatives. We don't have that. I wouldn't argue that such an endorsement would sanctify the killing, but without it, it certainly seems all the more onerous, immoral, if you will. A strong case can be made for the drone assassinations being unwise. Drone attacks leave behind trails of human suffering, grieving widows, orphaned children, young lives snuffed out, lifelong disabilities. They enrage local populations stoke anti-American <coughs> feelings, and prompt violent acts of revenge. <coughs> Quite arguably, these attacks do more harm than good for the United States. I first knew of the term blowback as a term coined by the author Chalmers Johnson, who wrote the trilogy Blowback and Sars of Empire and Nemesis. And blowback is the fundamental, it's fundamental to my deep-seated conviction that our empire of bases, the drone assassinations, all of our militarism in general, access tripwires out there on our planet. Because of our very presence out there and because of all these acts that I'm referring to, we are inducing uh, the response terrorism, if you will. This is a very interesting statistic that we see here from the scholar at the University of Chicago. You can see that through the first few years of this century, that there are far fewer suicide attacks directed at Americans, far fewer than the last 12 years. I would suggest that that's because we have ramped up what we're doing in the Middle East.
Robert Pape of the University of Chicago stated between 1980 and 2003, there were 343 suicide attacks around the world, 10% being anti-American inspired. Between 2004 and 2016, there were 2,000 suicide attacks, over 91% against U.S. or allied forces in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other countries. You might remember the incident in New York City in 2010 when a Pakistani-American was arrested for the attempted car bombing in Times Square. Faisal Shahzad, a Pakistani-American, was the accused. He chose the location, he said, precisely because it was there that he thought he could kill the most people possible. On being challenged by the presiding judge, he replied, well, the drone hits in Afghanistan and Iraq don't see children. They don't see anybody. They kill women, they kill children, they kill everybody. It's not coincidental that he had just recently returned from Pakistan at the time of the missile strike in an area in which he had lived. And you will know of General Stanley McChrystal. He, he commanded the Joint uh, Special Operations Command a few years ago, McChrystal. He would, he would seem to agree with what Faisal, the perpetrator of the attempted car bombing in New York Square or Times Square said. McChrystal said, the resentment created by American use of unmanned strikes is much greater than the average American understands or appreciates. They are hated, the strikes are hated on a visceral level, even by people who've never seen one or seen the effects. The use of drones exacerbates the perception of American arrogance. How unsurprising. And a New York Times op-ed piece recently said, every civilian casually represents an alienated family, a new desire for revenge, and more recruits for a militant movement that has grown exponentially even as drone strikes have increased. And I find uh, this statement by the president of the Trinity Episcopal School of Ministry, our former president, Paul Zoll, he underscores the judgment that death delivered from the heavens might precipitate extreme acts of vengeance. He attributes a virtual emasculation of the enemy by drone strikes and says, I use emasculate intentionally because our victims live in societies where male humiliation is a fate worse than death. Snipers in the sky reduce people on the ground to a condition of absolute helplessness because they cannot fight back against unmanned drones. While this might be a good strategy, he ponders it may instill a lifetime desire for revenge birthed from one silver glint way up in the sky that kills without warning or recourse. This is unavoidable. The amount of violence brought to the Muslim world by the United States vastly exceeds the violence brought to the United States by the Muslim population. So in, in trying to comprehend how all the dimensions of this militarism that I cite, I think we can look to the concept of normalized deviance. I was recently introduced to the concept that contends that if an act or practice persists long enough, no matter how nefarious it might be, no matter how extraordinary outside the bounds of conventional morality or ethics, that act or practice will become normalized or accepted. Take the case of the drone killings. 
It's a practice that the Obama administration has massively escalated. It's arguably cold-blooded murder, and we know it provokes widespread anger and hostility, and it is so counterproductive. So we're not apathetic. We are not lacking Ubuntu. We must hear the call for the change that the people of Standing Rock are voicing. These voices in every commemorated square are telling us whether we call ourselves anti-war activists or women's rights activists or environmental activists or human rights activists, climate change activists, LGBTQ activists, labor activists, plain citizens, they're calling to us. I really believe that it's what is happening at large to include the big picture at Standing Rock is the defining struggle of our times. Naomi Klein has warned us, David Corton has warned us, Howard Zinn has warned us, and Desmond Tutu calls on us. If not us, whom? Thanks. Dud Hendrick, local, Viet, local Vietnam veteran activist and member of Veterans for Peace. He was speaking at the Reversing Falls Sanctuary earlier this month. That piece was recorded and produced by WERU's Carolyn Coe. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture here on WERU. I'm your host, Amy Brown. And just a quick note before we wrap up here today, I'm still looking for a few good stories or anecdotes on winter, family, winter holidays, solstice, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, New Year's, Festivus, if that's what you celebrate. Uh, we have a couple who, since my announcement last week and the week before, have uh, signed up and done stories and anecdotes about family back in the day here in this area and about Christmas, and we have someone signed up to do something on solstice, but we definitely are lacking on the others and could take even more on Christmas and solstice and New Year's if you have anything. Just get in touch with me, Amy Brown, here at WERU. By the end of the day on Friday would be best. And let me know what you're thinking and we can possibly set up a time for you to come in and pre-record that. That would not be live. This is for next week's show, which is going to air on the winter solstice. Uh, next week, Maine's Currents falls on the 21st. And we'd like to continue in our tradition of some uh, live local storytelling and anecdotes. So again, if you have any winter holiday stories, family holiday stories, anecdotes, uh, some of the stories that we have are from people who lived here a long, long time ago and have some stories about what it was like back in the day, what Christmas was like specifically back during the Depression. Love to hear more of those. It's amy at WERU or news at WERU. Either one of those will get through to us. That's all we have time for today on Main Currents, which is independent local news, views, and culture here on WERU. 
And uh, Carolyn co-produced that last segment that you heard. I'm Amy Brown. John Greenman engineered today's program. Our thanks again to Naomi Shalit from the Maine Center for Investigative Reporting, who was on in our first segment, and her website is pinetreewatchdog.org. Stay tuned. We've got Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And just one final thing, we are wrapping up the end of the year here with fundraising push. We haven't quite made what we need to make our goals for this year, both in terms of money and new members. So if you uh, are not yet a member and have been thinking about it, or if you have some financial contribution, whatever amount works for you is great. Please give us a call during weekday business hours, Monday through Friday at 469-6600. Again, 469-6600. Your contributions help keep the media independent here on WERU. Thanks for listening. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. We'll remember 2016 as a tumultuous and historic year. We look toward 2017 with big questions and many unknowns. You rely on WERU for honest reporting and insightful analysis, real journalism that matters now more than ever. Your financial support sustains WERU's financial health and our editorial independence. Make your tax-deductible contribution today as you give to organizations that have real impact in your life and your community. Support grassroots journalism when we need it most. Give at WERU.org or 207-469-6600.